This is Truth Matters Church, contending for the faith one verse at a time. In part two of our study of the letter to the church in Ephesus found in Revelation chapter 2, we get an interesting glimpse into the work of angels and see how Jesus' words would have resonated with the believers in Ephesus as they lived under those who worshipped Artemis. Be sure to catch part one of this message if you haven't already. Here is Pastor Alex Contaroja. Let's look at the first part of verse 5 now. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. And that phrase, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, that phrase has allusions to an angel falling from their rightful place. This is why I believe this is also addressed to the angel too. Allow me to show you an example from this in the Old Testament. And this is probably familiar to many of us. When people ask the question, is, you know, where is Satan's fall in the Bible? Where is it recorded? Well, many will go to Isaiah 14. And many believe this is a vision of Satan. So let's pick it up there. And we'll pick it up in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, I I would agree, by the way, that this is descriptive of Satan and what was going on in his heart. And it describes Satan's fall from his rightful place. But I want to argue it's not just Satan that's in this, view, in, in this vision. Because if you keep reading, there's someone else. Continue on, verse 15. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down a shoal to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, catch this, is this the man who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. When we look at Isaiah as a whole, I believe that this is vision and prophecy of both the physical and the spiritual realm. Yes, in the spiritual, it's describing Satan's fall from his rightful place of authority and it plays itself out in the physical. In the physical, how it's going to play itself out is there's going to be many antichrists, but ultimately there's going to be the antichrist who when he arrives on the scene, he will make the earth tremble, including kingdoms. He will make the world like a wilderness. He will overthrow cities and keep prisoners in bondage. And I mentioned this time and time again. What happens in the spiritual plays itself out in the physical. And, that's, and Satan is not exempt from that. When he fell from his rightful place from heaven and he lifted up his heart and he sinned by saying he's going to be like the Most High, that he is trying to play that out through the different world powers throughout history. And ultimately, there will be the greatest power that this world has ever known in the Antichrist, the actual embodiment of Satan. If you can say if Satan incarnate, if he could, you know, I know he entered Judas, 
but if he can actually possess someone with full power and authority of the earth for a period of time, it'll, be, it'll play itself out when Antichrist and the false prophet arrive on the scene. Now let's go back to Revelation 2, verse 5. So when Jesus says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember, I believe it is also directed to the angel assigned over the church in Ephesus. And, you know, Jeremy, we've talked about this kind of briefly. Well, there's an angel over Ephesus. So are there angels over Truth Matters Church? Well, if you want to stay biblical, it's over a city or a town. So at least at that level, there are angels over municipalities in the physical. Where do you think there is the highest demonic influence in the world? There's a lot of places. Here, how about Sin City? Does that kind of give it away? You think there's a good angel over Sin City or an evil angel? What do you think? Does that mean there's not? I'm, no, there could be believers there. I'm not saying that's not the case. But who is running that town? You think it's a good angel or evil angel? It's kind of self-explanatory, right? So when Jesus says, now repent and do the deeds you did at first, I don't believe he's talking to the angel. Angels don't get a chance to repent. That's why it gets a little confusing. You're like, wait, you're writing to the angel, but you have to kind of keep in mind what is being communicated and use the rest of Scripture to say, okay, this is applying to the angel, to the believers, both. You got to kind of pay attention. When Jesus says, repent and do the deeds you did at first, I'm telling you, I believe that's only addressed to the believers in Ephesus. And how do we know that? And I just mentioned, only man can repent and be restored and saved. Amen. Through Jesus Christ. Angels aren't given that opportunity. Once you rebel and once you fall from your rightful place of position, you're done. Jesus still has authority over you, but in terms of being able to serve him for all eternity and not spend time the rest of eternity in Hades at first and then the lake of fire at the end, you're done if you rebel. Now let's look at repent and do the deeds at first. This is addressed to the believers here. Guess what I did? How do I know what deeds you did at first? Well, I had to go through Ephesians again. So I'm like, okay, let me go through Ephesians. What were some of the deeds or works or behavior that they did? Because that's what Jesus is calling them to do again. So I just kind of looked at it, Ephesians once again. And for those of you who know me, Ephesians is the one book that I've taught the most from cover to cover. And the last time I thought Ephesians, I said, just like when Paul said a tearful goodbye to the elders in, in Ephesus, like, oh, this is it. I said goodbye to Ephesians, because there's a lot of other books to plow. But I had to go back there just because I wanted to get an idea of the, dudes or the deeds or behaviors that they're being called to do again. Here's kind of a, just a, a description. Like what, were, what were some of their deeds or behavior? What was characteristic of the believers in Ephesus that Paul called out? You know, Paul called them faithful in Christ Jesus. They were made to know the mystery of His will. They were among those who were first to hope in Christ. They viewed themselves as God's own possession to the praise of His glory. They had a reputation of loving all the saints. Paul prayed that they be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Him. 
Paul also prayed that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that they may know the hope of their calling. Furthermore, Paul, he acknowledged their former way of life. They were no longer walking according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They were no longer a son of disobedience. They were no longer living according to the lust and desires of the flesh and the mind. And they were no longer living like a child of the devil. So Paul exhorted them to do good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Can I just want to say, there is a connection point here. When Paul says, for we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Do you know that Paul and Jesus here are saying the same thing? The heart of verse 5, when Jesus says to repent and do the deeds you did at first, he is also saying do the good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. But as we sadly, the church in Ephesus will depart from this and good works will no longer be a priority to them. And Paul also hammered home the point to them that, remember, God broke down the barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Even when it came to worshiping in the temple, Gentiles weren't allowed to go to certain areas of the temple, only the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. And Paul hammered home the point to them, that is no longer an issue in the gospel. And that God is in the business of creating one new man consisting of both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. And Paul also hammered home the point. So you remember, you were one time far off, but you are no longer aliens and strangers, and you are now part of the family of God. And we're not going to go through the entire book, but you kind of get a flavor. This was what was characteristic of the believers in Ephesus. And Paul and Jesus is exhorting them to return to those things that Paul described them in such high regard. Now, in taking a look at the book of Ephesians and taking that into consideration, when Jesus said to remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, here's what I believe likely happened to the church in Ephesus. I'm taking what we just covered in looking at their characteristics. When it was good, all you have to do is make it bad. Here's what I believe happened where now Jesus is telling them to repent and do the deeds you did at first. Here's what describes them at that time. They were no longer faithful in Christ Jesus. They, no, they forgot the mystery of His will. Their hope in Christ, it dwindled. They gave in to maybe cultural pressures and the sin that was around them and the false teaching and the false doctrines and the false apostles. As we know that they initially did that at first, they tested them, but... Whatever it was, their hope in Christ dwindled. They forgot they were God's own possession. And they no longer made it a priority to bring Him glory. And they no longer demonstrated love to all the saints. They no longer read, studied, and applied Scripture to their way of life to inform their decisions. Their hearts were darkened because they reverted back to their former way of life. 
They reverted back to walking according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They reverted back to being a son of disobedience, living according to the lust and flesh of the desires and mind. And they no longer behaved like a child of God and were looking more like their old selves, a child of the devil. They built back that wall of hostility between the Jews and Gentiles. Even though Paul was telling them, God broke down the barriers in the gospel in Christ. The Ephesians were starting to revert back and creating that tension and animosity between the Judaizers and the Jews and their religion. They no longer viewed the Old Testament in all its fullness they once again became strangers and aliens. They didn't heed to the warnings from Paul and Timothy not to entertain strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. If you ask me what were the deeds or what, what described their characteristics when Jesus uttered these words, I believe that those were the characteristics of them by the time that they received this letter or at least were on that path. Now let's look at the last part of verse 5. Or else, if you don't repent, I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Or else. (laughs) How many of us have kids? Have you told your kids, you better do this? Or else. What are you doing? You're threatening them. If you don't do this, you will be sorry. That's the same idea. If you don't repent and do the deeds you did at first, I'm warning you, you will be sorry. He says here, I am coming to you. Jesus is speaking. Coming is erkamai. It means to arrive. I'm going to arrive on the scene to you. Remember our, one of our principles and our rules of engagement number four. You is the church in Ephesus. Will remove is a future tense. That's prophecy. If you don't repent and do the deeds you did at first, I will come and remove, and, it's, and it goes on to say, your lampstand out of its place. Now let's look at what, what does he mean by lampstand. Remember, this was one of, when John saw in his vision earlier in chapter 1, he saw the Son of Man standing among seven golden lampstands, and I argue that was seven golden menorahs. And one of those lampstands, or one of those menorahs, was representative of the church in Ephesus. So let's look at what it means, lampstand out of its place. And I've covered this before, I'm not going to belabor this too much, but lampstand is luchnia. And it is different from luchnos, which is a lantern. So the lampstand, the luchnia, is the candlestick that would hold the lantern or the luchnos. So the luchnia describes the candlestick that holds the lantern. So to understand when Jesus says to take this lampstand, he's warning them or else their lampstand will be taken out of its place. Well, let's look at the Beatitudes to get some insight into that phrase. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp, a luchnos, and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, on a luchnia. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So here's the interpretation when Jesus is warning them. 
if they don't repent and do the deeds they did at first, that he will come and take his lampstand out of its place. Here's the interpretation. If the church of Ephesus doesn't repent, they no longer do good works, nor deeds, nor behavior. If the believers in Ephesus no longer seek to glorify their Father who is in heaven, Jesus Himself, the One who holds the seven stars in His right hand, He's going to personally come and remove their lampstand out of its place. Ephesus, if they don't heed to the warning, they're no longer going to be like a city set on a hill, nor a light of the world if they don't repent. Jesus personally removed their lampstand out of its place if they don't repent. Now let's look at verse 6. Yet this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When he says, yes, this you do have, uh, one thing when we study the letters to the seven churches, they're not all judged the same. In some cases, there's good deeds and evil deeds are mentioned. Sometimes, only good deeds are mentioned. And then sometimes, only evil deeds are mentioned. And I kind of bucketed them for us. So out of the seven letters to the seven churches, which one had a combination of good and evil? Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Which one? Jesus had nothing evil to say. No warning, just to hold on and persevere. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Which one did Jesus have nothing good to say at all? Laodicea. He says, but you have this going for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So hate, it's a very strong Greek word, misio. When you hate, it's, it's kind of this, you have ill will. Like, there's some animosity. A good way to look at it, if agape is the highest form of love, what's the opposite of agape? Misio, hate. Same as murdering someone, you can say even in your heart. So you hate, they hated the deeds or the works or the behaviors of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? When was the last time you heard of Nicolaitans? Well, the last time you read Revelation, right? So, you know, you Christians, when you say you're a Christian, that means you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a Christian. You follow Christ. So if you're a Nicolaitan, you're a follower of Nicholas. Well, who in the heck is Nicholas? What do we do first? What do we, we're going to practice our disciplines. Well, does Scripture have anything to say about Nicholas? Are there any Nicholases in Scripture? Well, there is, and there's just one. So let's look at what Scripture has to say about this one single Nicholas. And that's in Acts 6. So this is you know, a, a familiar passage to many of us, but there was a kind of an issue that came up in the early church where the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek widow, the Greek-speaking Jews' widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. There was an, uh, an issue that was brought to the apostles' attention. And the apostles were like, hey, it's not good for us to you know, wait on tables and to deal with these things, but to give ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer. And he, he goes on to give them the instruction on this is what they are to do. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So, okay, this is the one mention of Nicholas in the New Testament. Now, could this Nicholas be implicated as part of the Nicolaitans? And just, you know, there's some resources and teaching out there that will teach this. They'll say, oh yeah, this is Nicholas, one of the seven men that were selected initially, and then he went into apostasy or some sort, and went into now back to his kind of former ways. But here's why I can't agree with that. Verse 6 says, And these, the seven men, and Nicholas included, was brought before the apostles, and after praying, the apostles laid their hands on them, the seven men, including Nicholas. So for me, I can't agree with the notion that the apostles who received the Holy Spirit, and remember what we've learned last time, Peter was given the keys or the kleis of the kingdom of heaven, laid their hands on someone only later to advocate for a different doctrine that Jesus hates. Remember, who was it in Acts that tried to uh, buy the gift of the Holy Spirit? What happened when he tried to buy the Holy Spirit? He says, may your gold and silver perish with you, Peter says, for you thought that the gift of God can be purchased. He goes, I see that your heart is full with bitterness and gall, and that it is pretty much still, there's still a lot of work God has to do in your heart. And he goes, you better repent so that God can forgive you of your evil intent. So you're telling me Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, when he put his hand on Nicholas, didn't see that. So I can't agree that there's some teaching out there that says, okay, there's one Nicholas, there it is, and you make it fit. Well, you have to take it as a whole. All that is to say, okay, we struck out really there in Scripture. It doesn't really give us much to work with. Like, who are the Nicolaitans? Who's this Nicholas that people are following, this sect, this teaching? But Scripture does give us something to work with. And we're gonna, if Scripture gives us little, we will work with whatever it gives us. So what does Scripture give us to work with? Let's look at Nicolaitans, just that name or title. It's derived from Nicolaos, and it's a compound of Nikos and Laos. So Nicolaitans, it means Nikos and Laos. Nikos means to conquer and subdue, and Laos means for the people. So the meaning of this name literally means to conquer and subdue for the people. And we see some of us, right, the spirit of this in some religions today. There are some religions who desire to conquer and subdue nations in the name of religion and for the people. We see that, don't we? That's kind of the spirit also behind the Nicolaitans. Now, the only other time Nicolaitans is mentioned is when we get to the letter to Pergamum, and that's in verse 14. So let's read what, we'll kind of look ahead here into Pergamum. It says there, but I have a few things against you. Here's Jesus speaking and pretty much rendering his assessment. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the 
Nicolaitans. So it turns out, although our immediate passage really wasn't insightful enough because they hated the deeds, Pergamum, the letter to Pergamum, turned out to be pretty insightful because Balaam and Balak are mentioned and it's compared to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So let me, let me point out again what we just read, Revelation 2, you see there in verse 15, so you also have some in the same way, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The same way is connecting what's being contrasted here with the teaching of Balaam and Balak. So that is to say, Whatever the teaching of the Nicolaitans was, it was the same or similar to that of Balaam and Balak. Now, we're not going to get into a whole much there. We're just going to take with what the Scripture gives us. But here was part of the teachings. Because if you were to look at the teachings of Balaam and Balak, the teachings put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So this was against the mandate from the council held in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So if you follow the book of Acts, when Paul was doing his thing, when he was being challenged by the Jews to uphold circumcision, telling people, oh yeah, I know Paul's preaching this gospel, but you can't be saved unless you're circumcised too. And it caused a great debate between the two groups. And then Paul ended up with his company and Barnabas going back to Jerusalem. And they had a council there, in, and that's recorded for us in Acts 15. Pretty much what happened was Paul gave an account on what God, through the Holy Spirit, was doing in his ministry. And there was a decision that was rendered. You know, Peter gave his, his take, and then James gave his take. And I want to just kind of go straight to what the outcome was. So the question was, okay, so for these Gentiles, do they need to observe the law of Moses? Well, the verdict was, well, well, first of all, the Jews themselves, was, they couldn't really do it, so why are we going to put this load on even the Gentiles? But this is what their judgment was, verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment, and this is James speaking, that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So we're trying to figure out who are the Nicolaitans. So far there was a, a comparison between them and the teaching of Balaam and Balak. And part of that teaching included eating food, sacrificed to idols, and committing acts of immorality. And that is against what the judgment was concerning how the Gentiles should view, let's say, the law of Moses and circumcision in Acts 15. They were only asked not to eat food, sacrificed to idols, and also abstain from sexual immorality and from um, what is strangled from blood. So in verse 6, Jesus was at least commending the church in Ephesus for hating such teaching who were likely advocated by false apostles mentioned or Judaizers. So in other words, there could have been those who were claiming to be apostles. They visited the church in Ephesus or there were some Judaizers that came. And at least one of the things that the church in Ephesus had going for them was they were not 
agreeing to that teaching. So history also tells us, and you know, take it for what it is, there may have been a connection between Gnosticism and the Nicolaitans' doctrine, which would be consistent with the teachings of Balaam and Balak. And I want to get into Gnosticism. Um, and, you, know, for, you can go back to our study in 1 John uh, to kind of look what was behind that school of thought. But history also tells us that there may have been connection between Gnosticism and the Nicolaitans and Balaam and Balak. But one thing that they all kind of had in common is it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was good. It was okay to commit acts of immorality. And at least what the Ephesians had, they rejected that teaching of the Nicolaitans and they hated those deeds or works. Well, I wanted to get to verse 7. So you guys are, are you guys with me? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear, this echoes Isaiah. Isaiah 28, verse 23 in particular. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Because when we hear, he who has an ear, let him hear, just like what we've kind of learned as we've studied Revelation, when John is describing Jesus, you know, as the glorified son of man whose hair and his head is, and his hair is like white wool, like snow. And it goes on to describe him in just these figurative language that we think that, oh, you know, it's just, it just sounds pretty cool and nice. He who has an ear, let him hear. It just sounds like a catchy phrase. It's not just a catchy phrase. It's a call or a command to listen and obey or else. Did you catch that? He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a call or a command. Hey, listen and hear what the Lord says. Or else, something bad is going to happen. It has a spirit of warning. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you can also say, whoever has an ear and doesn't hear the or else that's being warned will come to pass in your life. What the Spirit says to the churches... Uh, when we get to the Godhead and the persons in the Trinity, it's very mysterious. One of the things that we've gleaned in our study of the book of Revelation so far is the embodiment of God. You know, if he took kind of the form of a man or a man figure, it was only the Father and the Son that kind of had this embodiment of a man. However, here it says what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit is still part of the Godhead. It's, I know it's mysterious when we try to describe you know, God. There's the Father, Son, and Spirit. All we know is that it's the same one God who is described and revealed to us in Scripture as different persons. So even though in our study of Revelation, a lot of focus and kind of attention has been given to the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is, is mentioned here as his own person, and yet he is the same spirit of the Father and the Son. Don't ask me how that all works out. Okay? But I, I, used to, I used to call out to say the Holy Spirit gets some love here. I know that we've, you know, I've been really hammering home the Father, the Father, the Father, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit or what the Holy Spirit or the Holy Numa says to the churches. There is a promise 
or a reward to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now to him who overcomes, who is that? To him who overcomes. And going back to our rules of engagement, principle number one, we must use scripture with scripture. First John 5, 5 tells us who is the one who overcomes. Who's in view here? Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the promise in 7b of what we're studying, even though I'm saying, remember, um, it's written to the church in Ephesus. Here's where it's going to go beyond Ephesus. And now this is to believers. To those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This applies to you. It's not just limited to them. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are, and you believe, let's say, Peter's confession upon which Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, here's the promise. It applies to them and to all believers. Jesus will grant us to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, tree of life and paradise of God. I'm not going to get too much into this because I covered this extensively in our study, Where Do We Go When We Die? Talked a lot about paradise and heaven. But I want to say this. Just like there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, there is a tree of life in the paradise of God. It can be said that before the fall, Adam and Eve were in the paradise of the Garden of Eden for God walked in the cool of the day and spoke with them. But after the fall, paradise is no longer here, is it? Paradise is now where Abraham and Lazarus were, where the thief on the cross was even taken. Paradise is synonymous with heaven, but it is distinct from the heavenly court where God the Father's throne is. is. Remember, I covered this extensively in that study. But here's the promise from the very lips of our Lord Jesus that if we believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and regardless of what other so-called apostles or prophets or Jews may claim, if we remain faithful even to the end, if we do that, Jesus is not only going to give you eternal life, but He will grant you permission to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of His Father. And if you look at the fall account, you go back to Genesis in the fall, Adam and Eve were prevented from eating from the tree of life lest they live forever because their sin hasn't been paid and atoned for yet by Christ. But that's not going to be the case for all believers. Adam and Eve were prevented to eat. We're going to eat. Now, there's some teaching out there saying, oh, the tree of life is Christ. No, the tree of life is the tree of life. There is a tree. There is a tree of life. There's an actual tree of life bearing fruit in its due season. We're going to eat from the tree of life. Just like when Adam and Eve were created and they can have you know, any fruit from any of the tree. There was one tree also there, the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. There is a tree of life in the paradise of God. And if we remain faithful and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, He will grant you and I permission 
to eat from that tree. I bet you that's going to be really good fruit. But here's some more historical context. We talked a lot about Artemis. She was also a goddess of fertility. Here's something that I didn't know leading into this study. In Ephesus, we talked about Artemis. We talked about who she was as a goddess in Greek mythology. We talked about her temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Here's another kind of known fun. Here's a fun fact. In Ephesus, outside of the court of the main kind of city area, the outer court, there was a tree that symbolized life. There was a tree in Ephesus that people would come. They would touch it, say prayers. They would seek health, life, and abundance and they would worship this tree. And that tree was also the source of hope and fullness of life for the Ephesians. With this historical context in mind, it actually brings this text to life. Since the Ephesians had their own version, if you ask the Ephesians, what's the tree of life? They're like, oh, it's the tree of life, pretty much in honor of Artemis of the Ephesians. It's right there in the city. That's a tree of life. You know, Jesus through John, is telling them, no, 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 no. The true tree of life is not in Ephesus. It's not on earth. But it is in the paradise of God. Jesus promises to them, pretty much, don't go with the crowd. Don't believe them. Don't go to that tree of life from this goddess of fertility. Instead, stay faithful to him. And he will grant you permission to eat from the real, the true tree of life, which is in the paradise of God in heaven. Thank you for joining us at Truth Matters Church. What a beautiful promise. Each one of us true believers will get to eat from the tree of life one day in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next week, we continue our verse-by-verse study of Revelation by looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them archived at truthmatterschurch.org. And if you've been blessed by the teachings you're hearing, consider a small financial gift to support our ministry. Give online at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.